Okay, we're going to be finishing Judges 12 today. There's only a couple of verses to get through, so hopefully not too much reading. We will be in verse 8 of Judges chapter 12. And just from there to verse uh, 15, which is the end of the chapter. After him, Isban of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Isban died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the, the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pranthonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pranthonite, died and was buried at Prethon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Uh, the title of the study tonight is From Everlasting to Everlasting. And I think uh, in reflecting on this text, we always have to ask the question, what is the purpose that the author has for including this summary here for us in the book of Judges? And I think one of the things that stands out to me right away, one of the reasons I want to focus on that, that idea of everlasting to everlasting is just the, uh, the emphasis on the leaders and their passing away. So if you were to go back up to verse 7 of chapter 12, uh, you notice that the very last thing we're told is that Jephthah, who is judged Israel for six years, we spent a lot of time on him so far. Uh, the last thing that we're told about him is that Jephthah the Gilead dies and he's buried, right? And that the same pattern of uh, telling that we have for each of the three judges that, int that is introduced here. We're told some small details about them, some more than others. But in every case, you have that same pattern. Uh, verse 10, then Isban died and was buried. Uh, verse 12, then Elon died and was buried. And then verse 15, then Abdon, the son of Hillel, died and was buried. And one of the things that stands out from that is essentially the, the lack of permanence that these judges have. And something we've been talking about broadly in the book of Judges is the, the problem of, let's say, the, the incomplete picture of a savior, the incomplete picture of a deliverer. So we've seen that painted in many different ways throughout the book of Judges, right? We've seen judges who have peaceful rules that are cut short, judges who have unjust rules or who have rules that don't actually establish peace in Israel, judges who don't actually really deliver the people, or judges who import their own problems into the people of Israel. So as they're saving and ruling over the people, they're bringing along sin and teaching the people wickedness and, and leading in an unjust kind of way. Just to point some examples of that, right? We've seen Abimelech who does that exact same thing when he avenges his enemies. We've seen Jephthah who's... Uh, not only warred with Ephraim and, and squared off against them with their pride, but also uh, who burned his own daughter, uh, thinking that was glorifying to God. And we have lots of pictures of that in, in the book of Judges. But one of the, the parts of the book of Judges pattern-wise that you have is these long stories about Judges that are like in high detail, and then like almost like a summary statement, and then a long story about a judge, and then a summary statement, long story, and a summary statement. And we've seen this a couple of times in Judges. Uh, the first one uh, came after we were told about uh, Gideon, right? We were told about Gideon, and then we're told about Abimelech, his son. And then we're told about uh, Tola and Jer. They're the judges that you might have missed them. 
they're, they're just, we're given brief details. We're told that they judged, how long they judged, and that they pass away. And then the next judge we're introduced to after Tola and Jer is Jephthah. And we're told that he rules and he reigns. And then right after Jephthah, we get this summary section as well. And that's going to set up for us the next judge, which is Samson. And you get a lot of details about Samson, a lot of stories. And so what we're not supposed to do with that information is assume that these are insignificant judges and that, the, and that he's just mentioning them as, uh, as side notes, that they're not interesting, that they don't have their own stories of deliverance or sin or anything like that. It's a storytelling device that the author is using to help us to keep the main thing, the main thing in the book. And the main thing from the beginning in Judges is not so much the telling of individual people in Israel's history who ruled and who reigned and who had cool stories of deliverance. The main theme of the book of Judges is a God who's leading his people from, from death and from wickedness into redemption, right? That's the whole story of the Old Testament. And so in Judges, how this comes out is uh, a God who's leading his people in their wickedness, in their own ability to stray away. He's nevertheless leading them into a king who's going to rule and reign over them. And throughout Judges, you have these pictures of judges or rulers or saviors, as it can also be translated, um, who rule and who reign always in imperfect ways. Uh, in this case, the, the thing that pops out to us as readers is not their sinful imperfection, which comes out with Jephthah, but what comes out to us with these people is almost in like staccato fashion that they die, they pass away, they don't last long. And the point is, let's assume that these judges have no sins that they commit that are massive, that, that they lead Israel in, right? Let's say they establish a perfect peace for the period of time that is listed here, right? For uh, Isban, that would be seven years. For Elon, that would be 10 years. And for um, Abdon, that would be eight years, right? even if they establish perfect peace. And we have no reason to believe that's the case because nowhere is it mentioned that the land had rest for X amount of years. We're just told that they judged for X amount of years. So, but let's assume that no big sin is committed, right? There's still something major that's lacking in their judgment, which is that it's not a forever kind of judgment. It's not able to establish any kind of lasting peace. Eventually they pass away and they have to pass the baton to the next person and the next person could screw it up. It's the same kind of, a uh, thing that, that we have as people, we observe this all the time, right? We have TV shows that we really like and they have really good seasons and then eventually either they end really good or they continue on until they become so bad that they're no longer watchable, right? We have the same thing with sports that we watch, right? Where we have, uh, they have seasons where they have really good athletes on the team and we would say that's the golden era of such and such team. But the problem is we can't put a pause on that period in history and have that kind of continue on forever, right? Eventually those people grow old or those people get traded or that team starts to become bad all over again. And so it is with Israel, even in, their, in the cases of their best leaders, right, Joshua, eventually he, he dies, he passes away, and he has to pass the baton to the next generation. And as readers, it should leave us with a sense of almost like an incompleteness, like there's something missing to the picture. It's the same kind of feeling you get when you get to the end of David's rule and David's reign. Solomon is up and he's going to get the baton passed to him and he rules and he reigns rightly. But the problem with Solomon is that he goes in an apostate direction. And so the golden era of David is lost in terms of morality to Solomon, who's worse than David in many of his sexual indulgences and sins. And then after Solomon, you get traded to his son, who's an even more wicked ruler, who taxes heavily the people and eventually splits the kingdom in two. And so there's this kind of downgrading of leadership as you go along. And so it is here uh, in Judges, right? As the judges were introduced to, as they go on, they kind of get worse and worse and worse, separated by these break sections, which we're at now. 
And the next judge we're going to get introduced to is probably the most morally fraught judge of them all, the one who's going to give us the most difficulty in asking the question, how is it that this man ends up in the hall of faith in Hebrews as, as someone who God used mightily to save his people? How is that the case? But when we don't know personal details about the judge, it's easy for us to dismiss them as unimportant, as though the author of Judges wrote this section in to fill a word count, but isn't communicating something to us. And so we have to ask the question, what is he communicating? Well, as I said earlier, uh, the, the idea of everlasting to everlasting that is, is what I think he's communicating, that there's a God who's the main picture, there's a God who's the main idea of Judges, and it's not any one judge that's the main idea of the book. The book doesn't exist to tell us interesting anecdotes about Gideon's life. The book exists to tell us about a God who's at work. And when you have these stories that put people back to the side, then you have, then you have to ask the question, well, what is this about? And it reminds you that this book is about God. It's not about any of the people or any of their details. It forces us as readers to take a step back from the details and see the big picture, I think, all over again. And it's a storytelling device that allows us to go deep dive into details and then back up and see how, what is the big picture of providence that's at work in these verses. One of the things that uh, stands out to me uh, as I was reading uh, my Bible these, these last two weeks, uh, we were reading in the book of Ecclesiastes. And you have this kind of motif in Ecclesiastes in chapter two that human work is kind of just vain, endless toil under the sun, right? That the work of our hand perishes or perhaps someone else takes it over and eats the fruit of our labor. And then uh, you get to chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, and it says that while our work uh, uh, toils and is in vain and eventually goes to waste, God's work is everlasting. His statutes are unchangeable. His work is established and rooted. And it's the same kind of idea that you get in Judges, right? Moses' work eventually comes to an end. Joshua's work eventually comes to an end. Even Jephthah's rule comes to an end. Even all of these Judges, it kind of pops out in your face. It comes to an end. But God's still at work fully in control of his people, fully leading them, fully guiding them, and fully in charge. And I think that, that stands out to us when we are able to kind of put the, human, uh, the humans to the side and see what's actually uh, being said in these verses. So I think it puts the focus for us back on God. But then the other question we can ask is, well, why this storytelling device in the book of Judges, I guess at this moment in time, what's, what's the purpose of, let's say, the overall structure? Why is he once again introducing a summary section for us. And I think part of it is because it's not just that there's this one summary section. I, I said earlier that those summary sections, if you look out throughout the book of Judges, you'll notice they're kind of spaced in with the most interesting characters that we have in Judges. So once we're introduced to Gideon and his craziness, then we get that kind of pause summary section that gives us a chance to reflect and see the big picture. And then we're introduced to Jephthah. We get this summary section right before we go into Samson. And it gives us the ability to pause and remind ourselves before we head into this crazy story of Samson, who's at play, what's at work, what's actually happening. Lest we go from Jephthah and his, uh, his episode with Ephraim and we go straight into Samson and we're, we begin to come con become convinced that the book of Judges is all about these people and kind of their distorted lives and, and all these kinds of things. Right? It's, the, it's, a, it's a storytelling device, if you like. And a rather effective one because when we read genealogies or we read sections like this that don't have rich, gory, or uh, drama-filled details in them, I think as readers, uh, as, as Western readers, we tend to just skip over it like it's unimportant because all the things we read outside of Scripture uh, have to draw our attention or draw our, our focus in either with drama or with, with violence or, um, or the like. But the author of Judges here is, is using a lack of detail 
to it to refocus our our minds to refocus i think our hearts and he's he's a masterful storyteller and the whole book of judges is arranged in a really uh cool way in that kind of sense and we won't really be able to dwell on the full riches of that until we get done with the book and we can take a look back and see all of what he's he's done as he's laid it out but nevertheless i think this section suffices to get us to focus not on the temporary rule of judges that's fading day in and day out but the everlasting rule of a god who is from everlasting to everlasting the psalms reflect on this theme that we need a king who can't pass away. We need a ruler who won't perish. We need a savior and a deliverer who's our rock and refuge, not today, not tomorrow, not next year, but right now and from everlasting to everlasting, one who won't change. It's the same idea you get in the New Testament where the disciples have had this wonderful ministry with Jesus and then he, he gets crucified. And the, the whole point of the story is, well, if he stays dead at this moment, all the last three years is really not that significant. But when he rises out of the grave and he's now ruling and reigning alive forever, the whole, the whole book of Acts happens. The whole uh, New Testament happens as a result of, of those events taking place because you have a ruler who finally can not be terminated in his reign, a ruler who finally won't have his throne uh, uh, lost to death or to time or to things like that. And these judges who don't accomplish that, <laughs> these judges who don't accomplish that make us focus and make us want the judge who can accomplish those things. It's, it's, if you like, it's an anti-type of what Christ will be for us one day. And it's not for us just one, lest we miss it. It's three anti-types, three judges who all have relatively short reigns, who all might have wickedness in their own right. You'll notice that they all have many children, uh, which implies, as we've discussed previously, um, that they probably had multiple wives or multiple concubines or some arrangement that puts them in a position of being able to have this many offspring. The other thing you'll notice about these judges listed here is that if there's anyone poised to be able to launch a dynasty, on human terms, the best way to launch a dynasty is to do what they're doing, which is to have power and to have a lot of children that can rule and reign after you. Gideon tries to do the same thing. Uh, Jephthah, you'll notice, only has one child, and that, so it's no surprise to us that his judgment comes to an end. But you'll notice with each of these uh, men here, they have 30 sons, the one has 30 daughters, and they kind of try to diversify their power. And at the end, he passes away, and the next one to take over is not even any of his children. So his attempt to establish whatever dynasty he was trying to establish is lost. Uh, the, the one after him uh, in verse 13, Abdon, you'll notice not only does he have uh, 40 children, he has 30 grandchildren who are going to rule and reign and help him to establish his kingdom. And nevertheless, after him, you'll notice that the land of Israel is once again lost to sin and to depravity. So even in all their human efforts to establish some kind of a dynasty, none of these people by their own human effort can, can get there. Uh, but nevertheless, um, God doesn't need human power or human might, right? He can raise up David. He can raise up individuals to do that kind of thing. And so I think the point uh, the author of Judges is making in, in telling us this is uh, it's not just that, it's, uh, that God's at work. He's at work usually in spite of people trying to seize the throne for themselves. He's at, he's at work usually in spite of people being imperfect in a great many ways. The, I mean, the whole book of Judges is about God working in Judges despite their shortcomings and uh, for the people despite their rebellion and sin. It's kind of this whole motif of he's able to use their deliverers despite the fact that those deliverers are rather difficult people to reconcile. And he's able to work on behalf of the people or for his people despite the fact that his people don't really show a real interest in being faithful to him for more than he can give that for more than he can really uh, give benefit to them. And so this is really the tension in judges, but it's really the tension that we have 
uh, by the time of the New Testament as well, that uh, God can work through sinful apostles despite all of their, um, all of their shortcomings. And so um, it's really the, the history of the church as well. And so uh, let me just close in uh, prayer and then we can move on to some discussion. Um, Father God, I thank you for uh, this time and I thank you for um, the time that you've given us to um, discuss together. Um, Lord, would you be with us as we uh, open your word and we uh, uh, discuss and I pray that you'd be with us as we uh, have conversations. In your name, amen.